0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick.
0: This week, we catch up with Howard Wu and learn about his new project, Alio, which is built around the Zexy ZK construction. But before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority is a security consulting company known for their dedication to privacy-respecting solutions and boundary-pushing technology. They are a team of security researchers, open-source developers, privacy advocates and cryptographers specialized in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. You may know them as the team behind the security audits and reviews of the ETH 2.0 specification, Protocol Lab's Gossip Sub Protocol, Zcash's Sapling Upgrade, Tezos Foundation's TZBTC, Blockstack's Investor Wallet, MetaMask's Lavamote, and more. Beyond auditing, they also have extensive experience in building distributed systems, helping to improve privacy-enhancing tools, and making regular contributions to open-source software projects. If you are looking to improve the security of your protocol or verify your use of cryptography, including zero-knowledge proofs anytime time from design to implementation, you can schedule a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help on your project. Visit their website, leastauthority.com, and hit the Schedule a Call button to book one of these calls. I've added the link in the show notes. So thank you again, Least Authority. And now, here's our interview with Howard. We have today on the call, Howard. How are you doing, Howard?
2: I'm good, and uh, thank you for having me on.
0: So Howard has already been on the show. We actually did this episode on ZK Snarks. It was one of the most popular episodes I think we've had on the Zero Knowledge podcast. And in that, we actually did introduce Howard quite extensively. And so you might want to listen to that episode. I'll add the link in the show notes. But just briefly, Howard is a researcher at Berkeley. He co-founded the Decrypt Capital VC and is also the co-founder of a new enterprise called Alio. And actually, just as a side note, I've actually been freelancing with Alio I've been working on a very specific thing, and I don't know that much about all of the other parts of Alios. So this is a chance for me to also explore this project a little bit deeper.
2: I, I'm pretty excited to talk about this, and uh, I'm also really glad that we're we're finally public. Um, it's been about a, a, a year of work that um, we've been working on um, uh, in stealth, and um, you know, in the past 48 hours since since coming public. I've been getting a number of of emails and also messages from people there's there's now a developer preview that we've put online and people have have started filing bugs and also joining our discord to, to give us uh messages there and um it's been it's it's just been a very exciting time. Cool. Maybe to set the background a little bit. I know very
1: little about this project other than the the public announcements. What was the spawn of this? Why did you start working on this? Like what was it that made you go like what was the problem or what was the the inspiration that made you kick this off
2: okay sure yeah so i guess like over the past year you know i've been thinking about ways to, to uh, for applications to become more personal and more private today the the model uh, on the web is very much about providing free services in exchange for personal data and uh, you know one of the things that I, I really want is just to be able to use my apps in peace um you know i want to be able to to use personal apps uh, without needing to hand over my personal data and uh i want applications that can also let me decide when and how my data is being used and and actually enforce that and so you know in building alio my goal has really been to to build web services that can that can become truly personal um living in places more than just your browser and also provide an experience that is really tailored for you where where you still have control of, over your information
0: hmm. in the previous episode we had you on I think we would have done your your background from, mm-hmm. you know, start to then. And so anyone who's curious about maybe that background, I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode sure. if you hadn't heard it already. But I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit like, since then, you've, I mean, you were working in academia and you were working in VC. And I'm curious, like, what did you learn in that time that sort of made this idea pop into your mind?
2: I think the number of, experiences that i that i've had over the past few years have taught me a lot of things like first i've seen a lot of projects uh, within crypto build out ecosystems and communities and and i've also seen a, a number of applications enabled on blockchains one of the things that that i've i've wanted over the past few years is this is this ability to have a private and programmable applications which hasn't been been possible thus far um and that was also why you know we worked on zexy um we looked at the ecosystem and realized you know there's kind of two axes you can really evaluate uh, uh, crypto on and it's one is on uh, on programmability and the other is on privacy and uh, you know bitcoin is rather low on both Um, Ethereum goes one direction to offer high programmability and uh, Zcash goes the other direction to offer high privacy. Um, but there's, there's this upper right hand quadrant of high programmability and high privacy that's really missing. And, uh, you know, it's an area that, that we said, why don't we take a stab at it? Um, you know, I've, I've wanted to see applications like this, uh, you know, for many years now. And, and that was how Zexy was, was born we ended up uh, publishing that as a paper uh, about it you know actually it was it just debuted this year um and so uh, and we published the the code last year um for people to start trying and and using it um you know since then the reception has been quite strong uh, and positive um people have been really interested in you know applications like uh like using decentralized dark pools or mixers for it um and uh, this is an area that i think you know ethereum has uh, it ha- has a lot going for it but it doesn't have the the foundation to actually support these types of applications and it's something that that for me you know i've i've wanted to to see out there and uh, it's something that that we've been we've been then then tinkering with in trying to make possible
0: did you ever try when you were doing more of the vc stuff did you ever kind of like Try to find a team to do it. Were you ever like, "Hey, there's this great technology that we came up with, a system that we came up with. Do you want to build it?" Or were you always in the back of your mind thinking, "Like, I'm gonna, this is mine."
2: I, I, I definitely did not plan on doing this. Uh, when I, <laughs> <laughs> certainly my role as a VC, we tried finding teams. To commercialize XC. and uh, one of the challenges that we found was just finding good pairs of people is really hard for this particular problem. Um, you have a very complex uh, technology um, with with uh, a a market where people not only have to understand the technology, but they have to be able to explain it well to other people. And mm. and combining, you know, the business and the development side, well, uh, we we found was really difficult. And after you know a year or so of of this, well. Matt and Ian were, were the ones who actually really were asking me about about uh, commercializing it myself. And um, you know, after after much thought uh, and discussion, I said, "Why don't we see if we can assemble a team?" And uh, and somewhere around middle of last year, uh, towards the end of the year, um, we realized that we could, and we said, "Why don't we we give it a shot?" And uh, you know, that was uh, that was how Alien was born.
0: Cool.
1: So, like Anna mentioned earlier, we had a, an episode with Pratush about Zexi. In particular and we'll link that Um, i'm curious in part also like what your involvement on zexy has been but also again do a recap of what zexy is as you mentioned it's it's in this cross between private and programmable but how does it actually achieve that
2: yeah so at its core um, zexy which stands for zero knowledge executions is a decentralized private computation protocol. Um, the idea is that we're using uh, zero-knowledge proofs to enable private applications in a recursive manner. The high level of Zexy is that um, there's really two things that we really wanted to achieve with it. The first one was to offer you know, full privacy for applications. And what we mean by that is that we, we delineate in the paper uh, two levels of privacy. One is uh, data privacy, and the second is functional privacy. and uh, the, you know, Data privacy is quite intuitive. The idea is that if you and I are communicating or you and I are interacting, only you and I should see this information. Um, and what functional privacy means here is that um, in addition to just our data being private, the application that we're using here also is not known to the public. So from an Ethereum perspective, you could think about it like, you know, not only do we not know the amounts within an ERC-20 transfer, we don't even know the fact that you are using this specific ERC-20 token or even... And ERC20 contract at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the that's the conceptual idea on privacy here. Um, And the second is really around um, providing a more scalable solution. And by scalable, you know, people like to talk about TPS. You know, from our perspective, uh, we've been looking at scalability in terms of the size of of applications. Um so on Ethereum, because there is roughly 10 second blocks and you have a block gas limit that you have to abide by, um, applications can only run for so long. And so the way that we get around this is effectively performing those types of application runtimes off-chain and merely verifying the proofs on-chain. And so by doing that, you can, as a miner, just check the output along with the proof and know for a fact that this state transition is correct. Um, And by, by doing it this way, it's far more scalable because it allows the miners to spend less time checking every execution, but also that every execution can be you know the same amount of time to check and because of that you know uh, that you can fit far more transactions into a block and this is also a way for applications to run for much longer than that little time slice that they're actually being given
0: you just mentioned this like recursive feature of the zexy protocol like is it i don't know if it's easy to do this but i was kind of trying to picture how that compared to something that we are more familiar with like the zcash transaction where there's a snark prepared for each transaction when you say recursive like is it each transaction then does a snark of the entire blockchain rather than it just being like a snark attached to a transaction
2: yeah so uh when i mean recursion actually there's different there's different types so um, in terms of recursion, uh, the approach that we took in in, in Zaxi was to have a recursion of depth two, and so it was a fixed-depth recursion. Okay. Um, there's also, you know, a, a lineage of recursion that that is more common, which is to, to have cycles of pairing-friendly elliptic curves be used, and by doing it this way, you can kind of have "quote-unquote" infinite recursion. In, in our case, the motivation for having this recursion is specifically for privacy um, for every transaction. So. In, in, instead of having transactions themselves publish proofs about the runtime, um, we are actually verifying the proofs about those application runtimes and then bundling those into a transaction proof um, in order for that to be published and, and, and so that the application data itself isn't visible. This approach lets us uh, you know achieve that level of functional privacy because um, the application proofs themselves are actually checked within a, a, an outer proof.
0: But is that recursion, you say it's only level two, it's like is that how you described it? I've heard that just yeah. said a few different ways, like recurse.
2: Uh, depth two Depth recursion? two, yeah,
0: layer two. Okay, anyway. yeah. But I i guess, are you doing that for compression in any way? Like, is it to make it smaller as well? Are you combining lots of them under one of these recursive snarks and then making it smaller?
2: Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a, another added benefit is that by checking multiple proofs here uh, within one single um, invocation you actually compress the transaction uh, so that you can bundle in our case uh, in the example in zexy is uh, two and two out that you can actually compress those four proofs into just one proof um, and because of that you actually save space uh, uh, you know as a as an added benefit
0: mm.
2: but the main purpose is functional privacy right it's not like you're not doing it because of compression yeah, it comes as a as a side effect for free, and uh, it's certainly nicer to be more efficient, uh, also in space. Yeah, and I I would encourage anyone who really wants to dig in
1: deep on how Zexy works to just listen to the episode with Bertouche, where he explains the birth scripts and death scripts and how all this works. Something that we touched on in that episode, though, is the ergonomics of programming in Zexy, which is a huge problem or uh, you know it's something that we discussed back then and the problem being that you need a trusted setup for each new type of application like the programming model is very different from ethereum so you need to like rejigger how you think about smart contract it's not one contract that just lives in a place but created and destroyed when you move coins around or move UTXOs around I mean, I I suppose this is, to some degree, what you try to address when you build a product around it. But before we get too deep into like the company, the product side of it, maybe what are your thoughts on those? Are these problems that are fundamental, or can they be solved?
2: Yeah. So in terms of the developer experience for 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 writing applications in the Zexy model, it's it's something that I think can certainly be improved upon. The way that we architected Zexy was um to allow for any type of NISIC here uh, to be used for um applications and um you know this could be anything from like grot 16 like snarks up to uh, universal snarks uh, but also you can use you know like bulletproofs or starks and um this model is meant to be be general um for different types of primitives um, in our case you know th- the proof system that 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 we are actually using for alio um is marlin and the rationale for that was to, to design uh, a system for applications where um, developers don't have to run a trusted setup for every app. It would be a, a huge uh, barrier to entry, in my opinion. And it'd also just be a huge pain for, for developers to have to reason about. And so from our, our perspective, it was something that we, we thought was very important and, and it's updatable, which is a really nice property to have here in terms of the actual programming model you know it's something that in the paper we we provided three examples for um so the first one was uh, you know private custom assets the second was a, a private stable coins which are things that that allow you to attach policies to them and then the third was a private dex and we we gave two different variants in in the paper for that um and uh, you know these are these are applications that we think you know in crypto are already um, kind of widely adopted or widely accepted, and we wanted to show what the privacy preserving variant of those could be um, and uh, you know even since then we've been evolving the the original designs of that in the paper so that it's more encompassing, it's more secure, it's also more performant and uh, you know that's that's an area that that we think is is also very exciting
0: so I think at this stage, you know we've refreshed a little bit this the story of Zexy and the story of how it works and some of the challenges. And now you've started to explain, you know, how it's been, how these challenges have been taken on, but we should actually describe Alio and actually introduce Alio maybe a little bit more now. So what is Alio? What is this company? What is it doing?
2: So the idea uh, for Alio is to build a platform that is fully private and to support applications that can be both truly personal and truly private. You know, over the, the past few years, one of the things that I've I've grown to care deeply about is this ability to um, own your data and uh, for information to be you know private Um, i think one of the really cool things that zero knowledge proofs enables is this ability for you to run your computations on private information um, without revealing it to other parties and uh, as part of that i've been exploring these these ideas especially uh, with respect to the web on you know how you can provide user experiences that are truly private for for the end user, um, while providing you know the service providers themselves with uh, the correct information, the correct state to continue serving them correctly. And um, this is a model that I think is really underexplored, especially in the context of the web today. Um, you know, the web itself has a model that requires users to kind of exchange their personal data um, for free services. And and I think that there that this model not only is uh, is antiquated, but it's also really uh, incentive. Uh, uh, incompatible for for the user and for the provider um, I think that there are you know far more clever models that people are are starting to to re- realize and also reason about and um, you know for for me it's something that I find very interesting and fascinating to explore
0: what was your experience at like at decrypt you worked as in, in academia and VC so you had access to so many different projects but like, In that process, something dawned on you that made you feel like you needed to build this company. What was that? Like, what was the spark that really, like, made you go, no, like, there's something still missing?
2: You know, one of my frustrations with the blockchain industry as a whole is just um, this general trend towards uh, building solutions in search of problems. I personally think that it's important to work backwards by starting at the user experience and trying to find the technologies you need to actually go build those solutions, I think we have a real shot at positioning Alio, um, to address a lot of the shortcomings in crypto. Um, you know, for one, I think deeply about user problems in general. Like it's something that I spend a lot of time on every day. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the areas that I really wanted to hit with Alio was just solving for the web. Like the web is a phenomenal place. It's a place that, that really connects us and allows us, especially during, you know, a time of COVID to actually stay, stay in touch with each other. But at the same time, we know that freedom on the web is going down, that censorship is going up and just the quality, the experience of the web itself is degrading. You know, there's, there's fake news. There's all these different, uh, you know, advertising platforms that are taking over. There's, there's a lot of spam that, that's being pushed to users and and we see it on our devices every day. It's it's a fundamental user experience that I think could be far better. And and I think that the business model of the web itself could even be completely changed. And, you know, I think we have a real shot at, at at making the web a better place. And, you know, Alio is is designed to actually provide that type of experience. And, you know, zero knowledge itself is a phenomenal technology for enabling that. Um, you know, we don't have this notion of of private web data today. Um, and in, and everything is starting to become a public commodity. If you look at your household there's just devices everywhere now and and we've come more web connected physically in our personal space than ever before you know in the wrong hands this type of technology is very clearly able to become a type of big brother experience where you know it's not something that we we want or it's not something that we intended to build for and and i think that being able to separate public web data from private web data is an important thing especially for this next decade um the internet's going to become pervasive it's going to become incredibly personal and i think that if we don't Actually, go for building the, the platform that allows private applications, um, we might not get it. And so, for me, it's about building uh, a web experience that actually addresses this, this, this shortcoming and provide with zero knowledge, uh, you know, a technology that actually can enable this um, in the right way. I think that uh you know it's it's a value proposition that should be open source it should be permissionless and and we should allow allow anyone to you know contribute and participate towards um because it's something that affects every one of us uh, as we become more web connected it will only become more apparent to people
0: When you when you talk about this like so you know we have critique of the web but I guess how do you undo this model that exists like do you still have to keep a foot in the web in order to do that
2: well, I, first off, I think the web is a really cool place. And, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to try to replace it. Um, you know, we've grown used to it. We've grown accustomed to it. And more so it's become a, a real part of our, our daily lives. Um, I think what makes sense really is to build an experience that is integrated with the web. It's cohesive with it. And it actually helps to unlock new value on the web. Um, so the, the purpose here. Is really to provide an experience for users where you know these types of services um, really live on the client side, and uh, instead of having to send your data over to the server, you know you you actually can just get transparent algorithms from the server and run it on the client side. You know for both sides there there's certainly benefits. You know from the from the user's perspective, they are no longer forced to give up their data in exchange for services that they want um, at the cost of their personal privacy. But also for, for the provider, they, they don't have to bear the risk, um, of managing, um, user data to provide their service. Mm. Um, so that means that they don't have to face the implications of storing, processing and reporting it. In this model, I think it's, it's one that, that really allows the users and providers to be incentive aligned, um, because they're no longer in this game where reputationally, um, you know, the provider is taking on all the risk for the user and the mm. user is forced to give up all of their information in exchange for, for that service. It is obviously a common complaint, especially in,
1: in the blockchain world, of, yeah, the web is broken and we need to fix it. And it's always interesting to see how people argue, do we integrate, do we provide something new? I think both paths are fine, but you kind of have to keep in mind the user, right? If you're providing something new, you need to get over that inertia of the web and, like, get someone to download a new kind of thing and get them to understand why they should do that i think that's a massive task While if you can integrate with the existing web and just provide some more value or some clearer um like you actually own your data on this website and uh, then i think that's a lot easier path to go as well because ultimately we're only interested in solving problems for people and like doing what they find valuable. So, I think if you can meet them where they are, it's it's a lot easier. But it for me this brings up a huge question. I mean, with what you just described, we are in this world where we give data to companies to f- for a free service. But this is spawned from the advertising industry and it's spawned from a place where people decided at some point they don't want to pay for things anymore, right? They'd rather get it for free and give up their privacy. How do you reverse that trend and tell someone you now have to pay? <laughs>
2: or if they don't, then what's the business model for the for the <laughs> provider? So in terms of, you know, business models, I, I personally think that, you know, first off that model remains cohesive in this in this new architecture um but at the same time i think what what this provides is more choice for users you know on the web today there is no simple way for them to pay for things there is no simple way for them to, to bill for things and having micropayments and having uh, the ability to actually charge from a resource perspective is is quite difficult right now and as we explore the, the different types of assets that now exist within crypto i think it's starting to show that there is more forms of payments than merely just money on its own. That that services and assets themselves, uh, more more broadly, um, can be used to, in exchange for other things. And this this is almost like going to this concept around bartering, but with a model that is far more scalable now. And from this perspective, I think these types of transactions allow you to actually pay for services fairly without having to to, to give up your data in exchange for it. Um, but I would also emphasize and stress that you know f- for services that want to collect your data and use your data, you know. I have no issues with that. What what I really find issue with is is when they don't uh, tell tell that to you upfront or and transparently. Um, I think thus far today, we don't really have good technologies to go and enforce that they're using your data responsibly. And and once your data is in in their hands, you know there's no takebacks. So it's very hard for us to control it. And because of that, you know we don't really have the power here. Um, and so what this model really is trying to do is to open up the the, the types of options or opportunities that that both users and providers can can explore and find the one that meets their needs. Um I think that uh, when it comes to user payments, uh, it's certainly one model where on the web today it's virtually impossible to do that at scale for every small item that you want to to receive or for every small bit of of streaming that you want to do. Um and uh, in this model it's something that you actually could give people the the option to um to have.
0: Um I wonder like the thing is some, like some of these topics this idea of like privacy and and you know putting more power into the hands of people like this this does come up often with the projects that we interview. And so I'm kind of wondering like how does Aleo line up when you think of projects like Aztec or Matter or Findora or Coda? These are sort of very zero knowledge focused projects. Where do you position Alio when you compare it to them?
2: You know my my personal belief is that in terms of what we're building the technology needs to sit on a new stack. To, to allow for privacy, um, for applications, you really need to build a system from the ground up that is private by default. Um, and we see this today already on, on Ethereum. You know, without, without privacy, um, you know, applications like smart contract mixers or dark pools, um, can't fully protect user activity. It just doesn't work. And, um, for companies who actually want that and want the scale associated um with off-chain computations, there is no good combination for that today. Um, that's where, you know, we've we've certainly thought about building this uh as a solution on Ethereum. We've certainly considered um other architectures as well. And at the end of the day, one of the things that continues to come back to us is the complexity and challenges of building a system like like Alio um, on a layer one that isn't private by default.
0: Hmm. So I think we've defined philosophically what Alio is and what it aims to do. But what is Alio? What is it? Like, what are the pieces of this project?
2: So Alio is a platform that is decentralized. Um, it has a blockchain uh, and it uses this blockchain to verify and store proofs. Um, these proofs are effectively, uh, sexy transactions. And, um, the, the architecture that we went for was something that was Bitcoin-like. So, you know, in Zexy, we talk about um, a ledger and we adhere to what looks like a UTXO model here. Um, And uh, for consensus, we've been developing something that is very much uh, snark friendly. So, um, you know, one of the my my personal goals, which is less about the web, is this ability to have uh, zero knowledge proofs in kind of mainstream audiences. And uh, one of the biggest barriers to getting there today is this ability to performantly compute zero knowledge proofs. I don't have a hardware background myself um and neither do do people on our team um but what we do have um is the ability to design incentives and, and incentive mechanisms and you know what we decided was to build a consensus algorithm that adhered to the same type of of cryptographic stack as the applications uh, that would uh, live on on Aleo and use that to basically incentivize miners to develop hardware acceleration for snarks um I think that the ability to have really performance snarks is, is really cool, but it's also one that we've seen um, even from the traditional computing industry from, uh, from many decades ago. Um, if you look at many of the cryptographic algorithms that are commonplace today, um, for example, for HTTPS, those types of operations uh, under the hood are really slow in software relatively speaking and it wasn't until you know companies like Intel started adding these uh, cryptographic units uh, into every CPU that that's shipped that these algorithms actually became performant and because mm-hmm. of that you know if we we almost take https for granted today but these types of uh, technologies you know required real hardware to be baked into every chip um uh, for every device in the world in order to be practical for use and uh, I think that we're in a very similar, uh, a very similar story here. Um, and the, the hope is that we can bring verifiable computations. And, and the goal is, is to bring verifiable computations, um, to mainstream audiences.
0: And this is this idea where the consensus, so the mining of this blockchain also, like whatever that action is under the hood, the thing that people are going to spend money buying hardware to potentially do and earn from it that process is actually useful throughout the rest of the system.
2: Yeah, Um, I guess the best way to talk about it is, um, so the consensus algorithm that that we've been working on is called Proof of uh, Succinct Work, and uh, it's based on proof of necessary work um, with Akis. Um, Who we've had on
0: the show a few weeks ago, and I'll add to that as well.
2: So the idea for us has been, you know, instead of going down the path of a succinct blockchain, um, we've been more interested in uh, using Alio for interoperability and also for for building efficient light clients. And um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to have this consensus algorithm be useful work. And instead of actually checking the entire history of a, a blockchain, um, we wanted to confirm that a transaction is actually included in a block. And um, so in our architecture, this circuit is effectively checking a Merkle tree about Transactions that are included in that block. And it's a, it's a very convenient way for, you know, a smart contract on another system to verify that a transaction was actually included in block, you know, 58 uh, on Alio, um, by just verifying a proof. So this model is very nice for interop, but it's also, it's also great for light clients because it's a very simple way to say, if I'm downloading a block's data, I can I can check very quickly that these transactions really were included in in a specific block um, without having to process them individually from genesis again.
1: That's interesting. So it's sort of it's proof of work where the work is generating proofs that the transactions are in the
2: block. Yeah. So the best way to think about it is similar to Bitcoin. It's a proof of work consensus algorithm, but instead of grinding SHA two five six, we're grinding SNARKs here. And uh, by doing that, the goal is to incentivize miners to develop hardware acceleration for SNARKs so that uh, we can make these types of computations um, a commodity and and commonplace. Um, By doing that and creating that incentive, um, you know, application developers on Alio can actually run their their applications, uh, you know, on ideally various service providers who happen to now have the choice of saying, if market demand says that, you know, there's a lot of programs and people want to pay a lot of transaction fees to run their programs. Great. I will target my hardware for those types of programs. But if if uh, suddenly there's a drop in activity, um, you know, it's not that these chips are useless. There is still a, a, a blockchain here where I can actually mine new blocks on and get a block reward for, and they can then target it for that instead. Um, I think that that's also something that will be useful for companies like Matter or for Aztec. Where, you know, they are building validators for rollups and uh, these, these rollup validators themselves are, you know, designed to be very performant for computing zero knowledge proofs. Um, and in the case that there is low traffic for rollup transactions, they could also use their hardware to actually target mining blocks on Alio. And uh, this gives an ability for, you know, validators there to actually have some constant or or more stable type of uh, revenue.
0: But is, like, when you're saying grinding the snarks, like, when you're actually, like, proving them or going, like, you're using that the work is the snark generation, is it useful snarks? Or is it useless snarks? Is it just the act of proving a snark? Or do you actually, are you actually attaching that to something else?
2: So the circuit itself is um, effectively a a small Merkle tree. And uh, this Merkle tree is meant to represent, you know, the state of this block So by performing this type of work, well, for one, you know, we're basically asking the miner to now check that the transactions are included in this block. But then for the rest of time. Um, every node no longer has to perform that inclusion check themselves because they can simply verify this proof to ensure that that they actually have the right block data. Um, and this is a really nice feature to have because it saves on all future participants for the rest of history from having to do extra cycles of computations for themselves. And it saves on a lot of work then.
0: Hmm.
2: Is there also a proof that I'm on the correct chain talking about like clients? So, so consensus about which chain you're on or which network you're on is a really hard problem. And it kind of gets back to just what is the source of truth. So in this case, it, it doesn't do that. Um, and, uh, it's also one that's, you know, more fundamentally just a question on consensus on what is the, the most common or, or what is the, on what is the right state? Yeah. So back to Anna's question,
1: I guess to, to keep talking about like clients. You know, normally a like client syncs the whole header chain to, to know that they're in the right place. And then uh, they go, I want to know either some state or, or like in Bitcoin, I want to know whether this transaction is included or not. And then they go ask a full node, is this transaction included? And the full node replies, well, I'm at this block with this hash and this is the Merkle tree here. And this is the transaction. So you can now, you know, here's a Merkle proof that it is here Uh, so what you're doing is because you have this proof of work that that proves the inclusion the full node doesn't have to reply perhaps with anything that's a question but even if they did have to reply with anything they just reply reply with the snark with the snark
2: proof saying here's a proof that it is Yeah, it ends up being a proof of inclusion um, for that transaction, and it's something that is even composable. So, for example, if you really wanted to give a proof that uh, not only was this transaction included in this block, but it was included in this block that now has six confirmations, what you could do is actually take six of those proofs in in those blocks and actually then uh, recursively come up with one new proof um, on top. That actually checks that those six uh, block proofs are indeed valid, and that this transaction then was included in, in the most recent of that. And then you can send that over, say, to a smart contract to go and check there. Um, just one proof instead of six, um, and and by doing it this way, uh, it, it it's far more efficient. For actually uh, doing interoperability. Um, but it's also a really nice way for light clients to just quickly validate. Oh, like if I really want this transaction and know and, and want to know that this thing uh, really was included on this ledger, um, at this, at this block, they can. I mean, a question for me immediately is, do light clients still just
1: sync the header chain? Or I mean, it feels like it would make sense for them to sync the header chain and all of the proofs. Like, depending on how large the proofs are, but like the difference between a like client and a full node is not necessarily that it's cheaper on data, but that you don't re-execute the transactions. But if you synced all of the proofs, then you still don't have to re-execute the transactions. You can just verify the proof.
2: Yeah. I mean, in this model, because the VM doesn't live on chain, um, there, there is actually never even execution for, for the full nodes themselves. Um, everyone on Alio just has to verify proofs and uh these proofs will ensure uh you know that the transactions themselves are valid state transitions. Yeah. So you're you're almost
1: collapsing the the roles like a like client and a full node is basically the same thing. I mean, you could construct a lighter like light client that doesn't have all of the data or something that that
2: is selective in what it downloads, but it's more or less the same thing. Yeah. The idea really is to make it crypto economically uh, well incentivized to, uh, you know, the idea being that on Ethereum today for a miner, they, they have to reason over whether to spend their cycles checking a, a transaction or trying to mine the next block effectively. And it's far more efficient to say uh, you, you don't have to re-execute these transactions from Genesis forever in order to, to ve- verify this block. And instead, you can just spend your cycles mining. Um, I think that from that perspective, it's also, uh, you know, far more efficient, you know, quote unquote, gas wise, because um, everyone gets and only needs the same amount of time uh, per transaction to, to be reasoned on uh, in order for that transaction to be included in a block. Um, in this case, you know, we're talking constant times of, you know, somewhere around three milliseconds. And and because of that, you know, no one needs any more time than that. Um, so it's a really nice benefit to have in this architecture.
0: Is like I know that there's I know Zexy the Zexy curve the Zexy concept has also been implemented in Plumo this uh light client on the cello construction is there any relationship to that is it is it similar
2: Yeah so the the cello folks are using the Zexy curves um they aren't using the ZXC transaction model, more so the curves uh, provide recursion, which is really useful in their case, if I understand correctly, for proof of stake um, in leader election, and also then composing the, the state of, of every round um, for their blocks. And so in that model, they are using BLS12377, and, and uh, to my knowledge, uh, they are exploring using um, BW6 uh, for then doing uh, block compression-like techniques.
0: But I guess in yours, it's, it's different because this light client could almost be this main, main node at the same time, like where Frederick's saying yeah. that they're kind of merging of roles. In their case, they have a more traditional blockchain where they're using this Zexy curve for purely the light. Yeah. Client.
2: Like the difference, I would say is that, um, for transactions here on Aether, they are uh, actual Zexy transactions. And so because of that, every, um, every execution is private and uh, every execution uh, comes with a zero knowledge proof. Um, in the cello model, uh, to my understanding um, it 's effectively a, a, a fork of Geth, where uh, transactions adhere to the smart contract and ethereum model, um, and uh, rather for validators, they are now you know constructing uh, signatures for the next block mm. and uh, by having a proof about these signatures it 's a very easy way to make sure that since genesis that you know your your block history is correct uh, and that you 're actually synced uh, to the to the right block as the latest block
1: yeah that is the point of the cell proof is is like what i said to prove that you are on the correct chain basically um as far as i know they bake in some origin hash to prevent long-range attacks and basically say this is the chain that it's supposed to be and then you have these in- intermittent proofs that you just sync those proofs rather than syncing the whole header chain um so it's just A faster way to sync a like lines rather than providing any privacy or any like other thing it's just faster syncing (laughs) yeah
0: one of the things that i wanted to sort of dig into was a little bit like the different snarks in the system like the zexy curve itself did it have a a variety of different snarks in it acting at the same time
2: yeah. So in Zaxi, we have a few circuits and these circuits are used to, to make attestations of validity for different statements. For example, there's there's the inner snark here where the inner snark is responsible, uh, one with checking that uh, a transaction is actually based on correct ledger state. So the way that, that uh, a actually transaction works uh, deep down is that we have serial numbers and commitments. The commitments are generated when you create a new transaction. And the serial numbers are revealed when you spend uh, a record. And so uh, in this model, the commitments themselves are composed into one giant Merkle tree uh, to represent the state of the ledger. And with the inner snark, we're actually taking the root of that tree, um, the ledger digest, um, and checking that when we're spending a record, that that its corresponding commitment actually lies in that, in that Merkle tree. With the outer snark, um, it does something a little bit different. So... The outer snark is the uh, circuit here that is actually one checking the inner circuit's proof, but then um, two, it's also uh, checking the input, uh, the, the death programs and the birth programs proofs. So uh, for every transaction, you're reasoning over, you know, spending some records and birthing some new records, and with each of those, it's basically an application runtime where, where you are composing a new proof for each of those. In this model, uh, the outer snark can check. Uh, for example, four proofs, so two in, two out, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, compress those as part of that, but also hide the application that you're running because the proofs themselves of those, of those, uh, state transitions are no longer public here. Um, and at the end, all you have is this outer snark proof, which is what you actually bundle in your transaction and publish on chain for people.
0: And does, is it that that ends up in the proof of succinct work?
2: Exactly. So that's the actual. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's the connection then. So this is the connection between Zexy and the proof of succinct work. This has remained a complete mystery to me until now. This is awesome. Cool.
2: So those transactions actually form the leaf of the Merkle tree um, that is then passed in for the actual proof of succinct work to, to check and, and base base itself on.
0: Okay. It's basically like all of these snarks and and with different purposes happening in parallel, I guess. And then those are in a way compressed, but also made private through this outer snark. And I know you just said it, but I can't remember exactly how you just said it. It's like the leaf of this, like this become this is part of the leaf of the Merkle tree that's then proven by the snark in the consensus mechanism itself.
2: Right. So that's the
0: useful work.
2: Effectively. We've been, we've been reasoning over a number of different design constraints for proof of succinct work. And it's in part because we need it to be really performant. So to actually come up with a performant uh, system for proof of succinct work, um, it doesn't really make sense, frankly, to actually uh, build a succinct blockchain there. And one of the design approaches we have right now is to construct a small Merkle tree um, that actually checks the state of, of multiple subtrees. And these subtrees themselves include for example the transactions uh, in them and so okay. because of that we actually have a way to then checkpoint state with this and this checkpointing is, is what serves as their proof of inclusion um, We've been evaluating a few other designs that are uh, effectively recursive to allow us to then extend this even further and also to bake an additional hardness on it um, we think that there's there's you know we think that there, there's a lot of interesting work that's happening right now within like the plonk and the pluck up space. And it's something that we've also been evaluating specifically for consensus here, um, to, to add that into this this model.
0: I think I've never heard that pronounced out loud. Do you just call it the pluck up space? No, yeah,
2: that's how they yeah, say it. Yeah, I too. call it pluck up. Is that right?
1: Or?
0: <laughs> Is that right?
1: <laughs> well, p- Is p- it p- up. I mean up. it's a new type of gate. And yeah, I they do say pluck up as well. <laughs> So we've, we've covered that you're building a new layer one. I'm curious to hear how, uh, is this a fork of Bitcoin like Zcash has been doing? Or is it, you know, everything new from scratch, networking, the whole shebang? Um, so in part, I'm curious to hear how, how are you actually building this blockchain? But I also want to dig into everything else that's needed to actually make this work.
2: And what are you building there? Uh, but let's start on the blocks, blockchain side. Yeah, um you know when we first got started we really wanted to use something off the shelf that already existed and we started looking at different different uh, blockchain implementations. One of the things that we really had to to account for was the fact that this this layer 1 was going to be private by default. Um and so because of that many of the architectures immediately were thrown out of the window. Um but then the second thing was that because Zcash itself is assuming a UTXO ledger, um you know there's also no compatibility with, um, you know, smart contract based platforms, and so we had to throw those out. And at the at the end of the day, there was basically, you know, one or two implementations that we could actually try basing ourselves off of. And and the main one that we were looking at was Zcash's implementation. Zcash Foundation has been working on an implementation of Zcash called Zebra, and um, you know that. That was one that we thought actually ha- had a lot of potential. Um, unfortunately, just given our timing, it was a, it was very early on uh, in, in Zebra's development. And so because of that, we ended up just going for our own model and we ended up building this thing from scratch. Um, the repo now is called Snark OS and it's on GitHub. Um, you can find it under uh, github.com slash aliohq slash snark os and um it's written in rust um there's a lot of modules in it it includes zexy in it and um also proof of succinct work and and it's it's not battle tested yet um you know <laughs> we've been we've been running uh, and we just started up testnet 1 and and as part of that it's a trusted testnet that's designed to one actually battle test the actual system um in, com- in conjunction with audits um but secondly it's also just to let people actually try using it and and try building on it um deploying things to it um, and seeing how it works. How many uh, engineers do you have on that? Because it's still quite a feat to be able to build that in a year. Yeah, so there's four folks on the team, um, myself included, who've been working on the implementation of Snark OS for the past year. But we've also gotten some really good extra help from uh, Georgios Konstantopoulos and also Kobe Gherkin, um who have been contractors working with us on that um initiative and um you know they've been helping instrument proof of succinct work um as well as uh, uh with with Akis who's been architecting it from from the th- theory side um you know right now we're in an implementation that we think is good enough for getting ourselves to testnet but we think we still have a really long road ahead to get to actual mainnet and so um you know the course of Of testnet one is effectively to start battle testing it to start stress testing to start actually uh, poking at it and seeing what breaks and also just letting users try it so uh, let's let's keep
1: going into you know outside of just the blockchain to you know make this system work to build something that's actually usable here you obviously need a ton of different things i mean when we talk to others in the space they have programming languages or ide's or various tooling to be able to prove in browsers or, or whatnot. Like, what other things outside of just the blockchain are you building?
2: Yeah, well, first off I would say the application programming model is something that we've spent a lot of time fleshing out. Um, when we first wrote Zexy, one of the things that we alluded to was this idea of being able to do private smart contracts, and we gave three examples uh, in there. Um, but you know, as you as you can imagine, uh, that was myself and Patrush and the others hand wiring these circuits uh, in-, in code uh, to actually come up with that model. And it's certainly one that I wouldn't expect you know average developers to actually do themselves. Uh, it requires a lot of cryptography knowledge it requires also a lot of careful handholding and uh, and and just a lot of hope um and it's something that that doesn't scale so um you know as part of that we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to design you know these types of private programs correctly and uh when we first got started we we started evaluating the different DSLs that are that are out there today you know everything from um zocrates to um xjsnark to um snarky Um, you know, recently there's zinc and, uh, one of the things that, that, that we found in, in evaluating these was that there wasn't a really good kind of developer tooling built with it. Um, and what I mean by that was it wasn't possible to write unit tests. Or integration tests. And more so, there wasn't really convenient functions to be able to actually get out the type of information you want when you're, when you're compiling that circuit. So if you wanted to see at what stage you were at or, or, you know, what the actual representation of the circuit looked like, there wasn't good serialization tools for us to actually evaluate and make sure that these circuits themselves were, were standing up to the, to, to what we expected them to be um and so in, and so as we were doing that what we, what we decided to do was actually to just fork one of these DSLs and build Leo on top of that and so we ended up uh, choosing Zocrates in part because of its maturity uh, uh, it's been around for a very long time um but also just because of its architecture we 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 particularly uh, liked the design on how they constructed ASTs here and uh, more so how the compiler actually reasoned about every step um it was well designed for doing you know optimizations and um one of the, the things that you know with any, with any engineer, they'll have opinions on his syntax. And so we ended up changing the syntax a bit. Um, but, uh, other than that, the foundations really d- did extend off of Socrates. And, um, you know, since then, I think we've evolved it to a point where it's, it's almost unrecognizable from its, uh, from its original starting point. Um, you know, with Leo, the objective has been to build a programming language that is intuitive and simple to write. We really wanted Leo to look and feel just like a traditional programming language. And and the goal here was really for, you know, the the normal web developer to be able to write private applications without having to reason about low level cryptography, you know, under the hood, Leo is is quite complex in that it's abstracting low level concepts and making it really easy to integrate um, private applications into higher level stacks. So the language ended up becoming something that looked far closer to javascript um, than it did to something like assembly and um, uh, even then like you know for something like javascript we found that that the design space for for it um, was actually quite well suited for for circuits here um the reasoning is that javascript itself is actually designed in one environment and ran in another and what i mean is that you write javascript um, with the intention of seeing its output in a console But in reality its code actually is running to manipulate a dom that is being shown on your interface and from that perspective the coder is actually thinking about two different models when they're writing one one program and we found that that was quite analogous to the model that we have here with circuits where you know, users are actually writing circuits uh, to be generated and, and output um, and run within a proof system. But in reality, when they're interacting with it to write tests and also, and also to even just debug it, you know, they're really looking at a console here. And, and so because of that, we realized that this type of syntax that JavaScript already came with, um, was, was one that was actually quite, uh, quite adaptable to the model that we were looking at. Are you um, at
0: all worried though? Like Solidity also is really easy, but has a lot of kind of issues, because of its ease of use, there's also chance for a lot of kind of m- misinterpretations. Are you at all worried about that with Leo? Or I guess you know that, le- like, I'm curious if you, how how deeply you learned that lesson from, from seeing it happen.
2: I am incredibly worried about this. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> all I can say is that we think very hard about this before, before committing to a design. And Leo is, still not in a final stage. Uh, the whole point on developer preview one actually um, is to get the language out there, is to get the the technologies we've been working on out there so that we can get feedback. Um, I'm a huge believer in in getting open feedback and iterating quickly, in part because you want good ideas to persist and you want bad ideas to, to, to die quickly. So um, for us, uh, the objective has been to get feedback from people um, to hear their input and also to see like what works, what doesn't, what sticks and what doesn't. Um, it's far easier to get that now than after you've baked the cake. Um, and uh, we've certainly seen, you know, with a lot of blockchains that it's really hard to change it and it's really hard to go back um, once you actually have it on mainnet.
0: Mm. You just mentioned Developer Preview 1. What is that?
2: Developer Preview 1 is the first release that we've made uh, since coming out of stealth. So for Alio, uh, Developer Preview 1 is meant to be a- an opportunity for people to once see what we've been working on, but then, two, to also try this type of experience that we've been we've been thinking about. The goal here is to provide an intuitive experience for writing private applications, and we've been building out a few different pieces of technology. Um, the first is Leo, which I've just talked about, but also you know secondly, we've been working on a package manager for Leo. So the idea is that um, in order for Leo to really kind of take off in our opinion, um, we think that it's really important for the right people to be writing circuits and for those those implementations of circuits to actually propagate across an ecosystem. Um, for example, if if you're the implementers of OpenSSL, um, you should be able to write an implementation of that that you can then then put out there for other people to import into a package when they're writing their applications. Uh, it shouldn't be that every user has to go and re-implement, for example, you know, SHA-256 from scratch whenever they want to write a program. And they also shouldn't have to go to GitHub uh, search for for a file that that has an implementation of it and copy paste it into their repo in order for that to happen. Um you know, I think that's a very common notion within traditional programming languages to have package managers, but within the blockchain ecosystem, specifically with with Ethereum and Solidity, um it's not so common and uh, because of that we have, you know, 20,000 copies of safe math on chain and um, um I think that in general it's 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 not a not a great design and it's also something that we think, you know, should be standardized. Mm. The last piece that we've released is is a product called Alias Studio, and the idea here was to jumpstart the development cycle for for developers in DP one. The goal of Alios Studio itself is to be an IDE uh, to make writing zero knowledge applications easy. Um, and at its core, Alios Studio itself um, has Leo baked in, so that you don't have to go and install some separate thing. You just have to download the software, open it up, and start writing your code. Um, but the second thing is also that it's it's integrated with um, the package manager, so by doing that, it makes it really easy for you to import and also to publish new packages, um, but it's also really easy for you to then collaborate with others so um, one of the features that we're currently flushing out is this ability to support um, teams and organizations so that you can actually work um, cross device uh, with other with other people, whether it be friends or colleagues um, on applications so unfortunately it's about time to wrap up but as a uh...
1: Uh, ending, I suppose, um, I usually like to ask and talk about what's coming up next. Uh, so you're at this point of developer preview one and your, your first testnet started working on some, some language, some of the tooling. What's up next?
2: Like, where are you going from here and what are you looking forward to? So in terms of the horizon, we're currently preparing for running a, a trusted setup ceremony for Marlin Marlin is a universal snark uh, and updatable snark that we're using for programs on Aleo, um, but also for the proof of succinct work um, uh, circuit as well. And uh, over the coming months, uh, you know, we are going to be building out uh, the infrastructure and tooling to actually run um, our setup here. So we'll be we'll be building out the the tooling and infrastructure for it, and uh, keep an eye out on our channels.
0: Yes, indeed, that's a good plan for everyone. So Howard. Thank you so much for coming back on the show.
2: Thank you for having me on and uh, really look forward to coming back. Yeah, thank you very much.
1: And uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening.